Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welsh History Podcast, episode 146, The Poet Rebel. Edmund Tudor was a man on a mission. He had recently been commissioned as Earl in 1453, and then was married to the Earl of Somerset's daughter, Margaret Beaufort, in 1455. Margaret was only 12 at the time, and was still a child, while Edmund was 25. Worse still to our modern ideals... He was actually her ward at the time. This comes about because, of course, her father had been killed during the Battle of St. Albans. And so there was this strange period where he was in charge of her. And then the next thing you know, he's marrying her. By the time she was 13, she would have her only child by Edmund, who she named Henry. Edmund, along with his brother Jasper, were sent to the principality, tasked with gaining Welsh support for the king. For Queen Margaret, having these stepbrother-in-laws had gone from being a convenience to being essential in maintaining the support of the hostile Welsh in the principality and in the hopes of undermining the efforts of the absentee marcher lords, who largely supported the duke at this stage. Even in the midst of this resurgence of Richard of Duke of York, the Tudors still flourished. In this moment of peril, the Bards of Wales came to the aid of the brothers, calling down praise upon them. Speaking of them with somewhat prophetic tones, the Tudors, of course, had long claimed lineage from the great hero of legend, Cadwaldar, using the King of the Britons as a pillar to their Welsh noble line. The poets, such as Daffod Nunmore, in 1453, had called Owen Tudor the keeper of the hearth of Cadwalder, once again hearkening back to the famous supposed ancestry. In Wales at the time, many minor landholders were being given power as the increasingly absentee nobles continued to delegate powers to these locals. This led to conflict as lawlessness of the Welsh countryside meant that many small conflicts over grazing land, fencing, and water would lead into family feuds. With the English distracted in London and Windsor, much of the apparatus of governing had gone with it. Much of the Welsh landscape had changed over the last 40 years since the end of the Glendower Revolt. While anti-Welsh laws continued to flourish, there was in general a movement in bringing Welsh families into the English-founded towns. Only in certain places in Wales did the English still dominate the local populations, treating them more like colonies than as actual communities within the country. Towns such as Temby, on the other hand, were growing increasingly Welsh, with more and more Welsh names entering into the records of the city. 
And as such, they continued to gain more and more authority in these communities as they started to outnumber the English minority. In the countryside, many were finding success in the fields, and strong beef markets meant that the Welsh cattle were once again an important cog in the European landscape of trade. This allowed more and more people to benefit from land holdings that previously had been dominated by English landlords and some of the minor Welsh nobility. After a half-century of plague and war, Wales was having its first real financial boon. The retreat and death of the marcher lords meant that many more Welsh landholders were grabbing land across Wales, and as it was ending up in the hands of the locals, they themselves were now plowing fortunes from the plains, and the movement of that population began to grow in the south, which of course is the fertile areas for agriculture, and on the borderlands of the east, which meant the arrival of more and more Welsh families to towns on both sides of the border. Citizens of Shrewsbury and Hereford may not have been happy by these increasing neighbors, but they still benefited nonetheless by all of this trade. These economic changes meant that some benefited who would not have a hundred years previously. Because of this, more and more people had a stake in this system, this very English system. Welsh people had a reason to comply, to benefit from this system, and in the case of poets and lyricists, more and more of their songs and poems of praise were to the established order. Gone were the songs of independence and the prophets of glory, and in its place were the love of culture and of the rich patrons who paid their bills, and to the order of society. These new Welsh bards would be given a way to express that love and honor in competitions that focused the judging of these poets in the hands of these very same rich patrons. This also meant that some of the richer landlords and landholding populations were, at heart, no longer bothered so much by nationalism as in the power that they could grab from their neighbors. While some would be able to use that momentum to climb the royal ladder, others jealously guarded what they had and tried to make sure that they weren't succeeded by others coming from outside or in. The Tudors' arrival in Wales was immediately met with anger by at least one influential Welsh noble. Griffith Ap Nicholas was a minor noble who lived in the Carmarthen area and had been able to gain more and more power during the time of the youth of Henry VI. Griffith is believed to be the son of Nicholas Ap Philip, likely born around the time of the Glendore Revolt, or maybe a little before. In 1425, Griffith is referenced as the king's approver for the lordship and town of Dunfier. By 1436, he was the sheriff of Carmarthenshire, and by 1439, he was a farmer in the area of Dunfier with his son John, and had gained a number of land holdings in that process. During his life, Griffith was married twice. His first was Shanferch Senklin, and his second to Mabel Dunn. They had five children between them, Mary, Maud, Thomas, John, and Owain. His reputation as a hot-headed and vicious man made him and his family a reputation, which was repeated in written documents up to 200 years later. So this was not something that wasn't known even amongst his own family. 
the 17th century history of his family describes Griffith's character saying he was hot fire and choleric spirit. Though very wise, he was infantile and subtle and craftily ambitious beyond measure and of a busy, stirring brain. He was clever, vindictive, and as crafty as he was ambitious. In other words, crossing him was very dangerous. He lived up to that reputation. One thing that likely protected him was his patron, the brother of Henry V, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. Having friends in high places had seen him put in charge of important lands around South Wales and to continue to benefit from that connection. In 1442 and 1443, he and the Abbot of Whitland were summoned to London in the Privy Council on an order for the arrest of Griffith's son, Owen. His influence in front of the court allowed him to appear before them and to appeal for his son. However, his influence would not last, and with the fall of the Duke, he himself was imprisoned along with other members of Duke Humphrey's retinue. He was soon to be released and regained his confidence of the court, continuing to act as the Justice of South Wales and occasionally for the Chamberlain. John Delabere, the Bishop of St. David's, committed his bishopric to the care of Griffith, and the Duke of York obtained license on the 13th of May, 1449, to grant him and the bishop the castle, manor, and town of Nazareth. He and his son Thomas were then placed on a commission for the defense of the ports of southwest Wales to muster forces and to wreck beacons, and this was done specifically on the 7th of October, 1450. In 1451, he organized the in Camarthen one of the earliest Aestifods, and he acted as judge for that competition. As an example of his ability to display Welsh culture at a time when it was frowned upon by most of English society, he then showed how much love he must have had for bardic poetry and music to assemble such a massive undertaking. After St. Albans, Griffith lost possessions that he had held as the Lord Protector removed some of them, but it was the arrival of Edmund and Jasper Tudor that was the source according to a lot of scholars, for the greatest of his anger. Having had larger and larger autonomy, the Lord of Dinfier was not prepared to be questioned or apparently to report to a more senior noble, at least not in Wales itself, and certainly not to someone who's actually younger than him. York, for his part, wanted Edmund to curb Griffith because he had acquired lands from Somerset, including the castles of Aberystwyth and Carmarthen, lands that, by right, were probably closer to Edmund's in possession due to his wife's linkages to them, but yet York wanted them. Edmund would instead be assigned to Lamphrey, north of Pembroke and Jasper's holdings at the time. In September of 1455, he arrived there with the combined might of Lancastrian and Yorkist orders it was his to get the south of Wales under control. From the autumn of 1455 to the late spring of 1456, the two sides appeared to be building to some sort of conflict. It was felt that Griffith looked down on Edmund because he held no property in Wales, but was placed higher than he was on the royal pecking order. 
feeling that the elder Tudor brother was too inexperienced to lead and that he would not be talked down to, Griffith turned from distrust to something like open rebellion. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor, will include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Sadly, at this point, our sources are much more concerned about what is going on in England, so much so that what we have here is very piecemeal. One report said that as of June 1456, Griffith and Edmund were at war greatly, in quotes. Griffith, at some point, controlled both Camarthen and Aberyst with castles, both of which belonged to the Duke of York. He also took Carrigkenan and Kidwelly Castle. Meanwhile, Edmund would fight back and would eventually win back Camarthen Castle, but in doing the royal bidding in the Ward of the Roses, it's not always to your best interest to be in the line of commission. One of these orders that were of negative consequence due to changing events was this very move to take Camarthen. And various people on all sides of the conflict looked at it very negatively. Unfortunately for Edmund, things had not gone well in England for the Tudors. In February 1456, events in England took yet another turn. 
King Henry once again recovered from the episode that had started in St. Albans the previous year. His immediate move was to remove York as Lord Protector, but without much of his former council around him, kept him in place as a senior advisor. Henry was nominally in charge, but once again the push and pull in the royal council was between York and the Queen. Mutual suspicion was the key trigger in court in this period, and the Queen went out on tour to try and gain more and more support for her side, including attending in South Wales. The loss at St. Albans had taken from her key allies who had the power to stand against York. The loss of Edmund Beaufort particularly was crushing to her uh, ability to stand against him. It's at this stage that the capture of Carmarthen Castle had happened. For Edmund Tudor, it would achieve him what he'd been asked to do by royal decree to bring back English dominance to the area. But York viewed it as taking a town and castle that was his and that it was a personal affront for Edmund to possess it. This was likely more to do with the Tudors being Lancastrians than anything to do with Edmonton had done wrong. Carmarthen was the Duke's property and he was not prepared to have Edmund hold it. So York sent troops, estimated to be around 2,000 men, to recapture the town and the castle. They were led by the Welsh-based William Herbert and the Vaughns, two major families in Wales at the time. William also asked his father-in-law, Sir Walter Devereux, to accompany him, and they left Hereford on August 10th to take the town back. Whether Edmund was to blame for some of this, we don't really know. Other than he held York's possessions, there was not enough, apparently, to cause the Duke to send soldiers. In 1457, the Queen, probably playing a game to protect herself from York, pardoned Griffith and his sons, which, if we're being honest, seems like a bit of a peculiar thing to do at that particular moment in time. But as it will become clearer, there was a very good reason for her to do it. Edmund surrendered to Herbert that summer. His wife, seven months pregnant, and his brother in possession of the Pembroke Castle. Edmund might have felt that he would be only in a minor amount of trouble, certainly nothing too serious. Misunderstandings can be cleared up, surely. As it turned out, Edmund was released shortly after, but the conditions he had been held in brought on some sort of disease. Some have speculated that it might have been the Black Death due to some of the comments by poets later. And Edmund Tudor, first son of Owen Tudor and Queen Catherine, died, leaving behind a 13-year-old widow and soon his only son, Henry. When Henry Tudor was born, the fear of the plague, especially at the death of his father, had frightened many in and out of court, more or less seen like bad luck or a bad omen. On top of that, his mother was small in stature, and of course at 13 was a very young woman, who by right of the day in the Middle Ages was still considered to be too young to conceive. In medieval England and Wales, 14 was the age at which young women were considered to be able to have children safely. Still at an age, which of course would be unacceptable today, but in an era of political marriages and little concern about the welfare of women, it seems like little thought was given to their welfare, and would explain to some degree why so many died in childbirth. On January 28, 1457, Margaret gave birth to Henry in Pembroke Castle. One story tells that his baptism he was going to be given the name Owen, 
But Margaret put a stop to that and declared that his name was Henry. More than one scholar commented that this was probably the right choice to make considering its linkages to the kings of England. And of course, Owen's name being linked to the Welsh lineage. The death of Edmund saw the power he had achieved rather than being accumulated under his own banner, including the acquisition of Somerset's vast holdings. Instead, all of the Tudor lands went to his wife Margaret to be held in trust for his son. Margaret, by accident, had become, at her young age, one of the most powerful landholders in England and Wales. Unfortunately for her and her son and her brother-in-law Jasper, this meant that they would continue to be wrapped up in the strategies and tactics of various parties in the War of the Roses. Jasper, in the meantime, himself had not been idle. He was now working with one of his old enemies, as he and Griffith Ap Nicholas had formed an alliance, one that would see the power of the southern landholders offer support to the queen, and the pardon likely would help lubricate the obedience of this hot-headed poet patron. The Tudor survivors continued to advance their cause, and as Jasper expanded his reach in southwest Wales, grabbing possessions away from York, including Carmarthen and Aberystwyth, it allowed him to control which was once that territory of the kingdom of Doithbarth. For the first time since Glyndwr's defeat, a large portion of Welsh land was now in the hands of Welsh nobility. Edmund may not have lived to see it, but the Tudors were back, and they were better than ever. And the one thing to note from all this is how much hinged on the changing tides of fortune. Easily had things gone differently, the Tudors could have been minor nobles in the house, married into the family of the king, not really important, but at a critical moment in a critical period, in a time when England was on the precipice of serious civil war, the Tudors came into the situation at the absolute best point in time. And the birth of Henry, the only child of these two people, and Margaret's only child as well, would become the key to so much that would happen in the future. He was both dangerous and yet at the same time carried with him a lot of himself, which created uh, a level of contention that not many could argue with. From the viewpoint of Welsh poets, for example, the major contenders in the War of the Roses were not the Duke of York and Henry V, but rather Edward IV and Henry Tudor, both of whom could claim links in Wales as both were supported by leading families in Wales. Edward, who we'll talk about in depth later, was a descendant of the Mortimer family, a powerful dynasty of marcher lords who had carried the title of Earls of the March and, of course, were influential in Wales right up to the revolt of Glyndor and even helped him. Their estates covered vast areas of eastern Wales, and on the other side of the English border, they also had various land holdings. The Mortimers, some of whom had supported Owen Glyndor, could trace their descent into the lines of 13th century Welsh princes in North Wales. Gladys, the daughter of Llewellyn ap Oireth, Prince of Gwynedd, had married Ralph Mortimer at about 1230, and Edward IV, Earl of the March was her direct descendant. 
Of course, Henry, being a Tudor, was also linked into Welsh nobility, and it was also linked into the Glyndwr revolt on the other side of the Welsh-English line of that support. And so it's almost funny in a way, if you look at it, to see that where so much of this is discussed as being an English civil war, a lot of it carries into the Welsh ancestries and the Welsh nobility in ways that I don't think a lot of people expected or thought would be the case. So as we go forward and we talk more in depth about Henry and, of course, later about Edward IV, keep those two things in mind, that these two kings and princes were, in effect, descendants of great kings in Wales. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening this week. Thank you all for your support, help, questions, comments. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And of course, if you'd like to support the podcast, help me pay for some of the books that I need to buy for this podcast, research I need to do, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hey, podcast listeners. I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.